0: I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. The name Benedict Arnold is almost always associated with being a traitor. In 1780, Arnold, who was then the commander of West Point, a strategic American fort, on the Hudson River during the Revolutionary War, handed over military secrets to a British spy named Major Andre. However, Andre was captured and Arnold's treasonous act was discovered. While Andre was tried and hanged by the Americans, Arnold was able to escape and eventually fight for the British against his former comrades. Although widely known as a traitor, many people don't know that prior to defecting to the British, Arnold, who had risen to the rank of Major General, had fought bravely and with great distinction for the American Continental Army, and had been one of General George Washington's most valued officers. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we'll be speaking with award-winning author and historian Jack Kelly about his new book, God Save Benedict Arnold. The True Story of America's Most Hated Man. Jack will explain Benedict Arnold both as a hero and a traitor and will help us explore the motivations of this complicated historical figure. I'd now like to welcome award-winning author and historian Jack Kelly. Welcome, Jack.
1: Thank you very much, James. It's a great pleasure to be with you.
0: Yeah, so I'm very pleased to be speaking with you. So with... uh, my being from northern New Jersey. I've always been pretty much a stone's throw away from a lot of Revolutionary War history. I've actually heard New Jersey sometimes referred to as the military capital of the Revolution. But you are from New York, right, Jack?
1: Yeah, I live in the Hudson Valley, which is another area that saw a lot of uh, action and a lot of strategic significance during the war.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. As far as Benedict Arnold. The name Benedict Arnold is a name I've known for many, many years, even as a little kid. But one of the things that I remember is that it was always associated with something really, really bad. And somebody who really was somebody who turned on you.
1: Everybody knows one thing about Benedict Arnold, which is uh, that he was a traitor. And um, part of my purpose in writing the book was to get across the idea that uh, there's a lot more to Benedict Arnold than that one thing, though that one thing, I, I in no way try to exonerate him or to um, diminish the severity of his treason, but there was so much more to him. And that it, also that it's important to get the a, a clear view of the Revolutionary War, to understand how he fits into it. So I think um, really one of the most interesting characters in the revolutionary era and, and, in a, and, in a way in American history in general, it's Benedict Arnold.
0: Oh, definitely. I even remember one of my favorite comedies was the honeymooners. I'm sure you remember that one, uh, where Ralph Cramden felt that Ed Norton had turned against him and he called him you Benedict Arnold. <laughs> yeah it
1: became a synonym for treason and it's still you still see it today uh in cartoons and references he's a benedict arnold everybody knows what it means um but uh you know one of the things i found interesting is that benedict arnold was an extreme example of a type of person of which there were a number of during the revolutionary era and and also later of these paradoxical figures that seemed to go both ways. They they had sympathy for the king, but they also had sympathy for the cause, and they would veer back and forth during the um, course of the war. And people like um, Ethan Allen, for example, or Aaron Burr, or General Charles Lee, who is, is not a well-known figure in the revolution now, but was very prominent early in the war and was uh, had his doubts and had his conflicts uh benedict arnold wasn't just totally unique but he just took it a lot farther than uh, anybody else did and i think looking down in history you see you know people like john brown was john brown a good person or a bad person you know it's it's hard to tell he had conflicting ideas and conflicting actions throughout his life
0: i know sometimes you you hear about rankings of presidents by presidential historians throughout the years and you'll notice sometimes how that ranking changes in time you know because of the same reasons that they, they're
1: different things that they did that's a good point point. and andrew jackson of course being one of those who was uh, was at one time considered a huge hero and then issues of slavery and uh, his uh, relations with the indians uh now he's uh, in the outs, and and even Thomas Jefferson. I mean, Thomas Jefferson is a great man, but he was a slave owner. And uh, so one of the things I really love about history is the fact that it's constantly evolving, and it's a, it's a dynamic thing. It's not just a list of facts from the past.
0: Oh, I love it. I love it. There's so many things that are being revealed as there's more information seems to be available digitally and as making some... For for some historians, easier work in some cases. Sometimes you gotta roll up your sleeves and really dig into the old archives. I can imagine you've done that. And yeah, uh, it can become new. History is not old, it's it's new because you discover so many new things. I thought what we could do is just I'm gonna ask you a few questions to take us through the book. By the way, wonderful book, God Save Benedict Arnold, the true story of America's Most Hated Man. Let's start off with Benedict Arnold's background. I understand that. He came from a a very old family in New England, and that they had some money at some point in time, didn't they?
1: Yeah. um, My book is not primarily a biography of Arnold, but I do go into his background a little just to give some context. And his uh, going back four generations, his uh, grandfather and everybody in the family was named Benedict in the Arnold family. It was passed down to him, and he passed on to his son. His great-great-great-grandfather had been the the governor of Rhode Island and was a very wealthy man. And the family fortune got sort of diluted as it came down the the line. His father was not wealthy to begin with, but he he married well, he did well in business, and he became very successful. And he was largely just a merchant trader who had his own ships and would go down to trade mostly in the West Indies. And Benedict Arnold was, and I, I emphasize this fact to people, was, was a seaman. He went with his father on, on sea voyages. father was captain of the ship and um, had, you know, a pretty exciting childhood for a while. Uh, his father then became an alcoholic. and the business went down. He couldn't keep up the business. He became like the town drunk, a big disgrace for the family his son, Benedict Arnold, was sent out to to find his father in a tavern to find him lying along the street and bring him home. A very searing duty for a 12, 13-year-old kid. And um, that failure of the family business and the fact that he had to drop out of school, had to become an apprentice was a major factor in sort of shaping Benedict Arnold's view of the world. And his sensitivity to, uh, any slight to his honor. So that factor, I think, stayed with him. And the other big factor from his childhood that was important was that his mother was a Puritan, uh, Calvinist and, um, had the real hardcore Calvinist view of death. And we should always be aware of death and always be ready to, to lose your life. And she knew what she was talking about because she lost like three children to uh, epidemics. It was very common in those days. And she kept emphasizing to Benedict Arnold, be aware that you're going to die and be ready to die. And I think that had a had an impact on him, even though he was not himself that particularly religious, not really religious at all, as far as we know, but um, kept that idea in his head.
0: Before he got involved in the War for Independence, he did become successful as a businessman himself, didn't he?
1: Yes. He's often referred to as an apothecary because he did sign on with some relatives of his mother who had an apothecary uh, shop in eastern Connecticut. But an apothecary in those days, first of all, was more of a general store, sort of a high-end general store. They sold medicine, but they also sold books and they sold jewelry and uh, just a lot of high-end items but the firm that he worked with that was apprenticed to was also a trading company and they had an international trading business to the West Indies to England to Canada and when he finally got through with his apprenticeship he set up his own business and they helped him they they helped bankroll his business and he started a, an apothecary shop in uh, New Haven But was also immediately getting into trading, bought his own sailing ships and cargo ships, so uh, very widely traveled and quite successful. He had the biggest house in uh, New Haven in his 30s and married and had three sons and was, at the beginning of the revolution, was a a successful businessman who basically abandoned his life at that point to join the, the fight against the British.
0: While he had some experience on ships, he didn't have anything really substantial as far as military training or experience when the War for Independence broke out, did he?
1: Yeah, I always point, though, to the the fact that he was a ship's captain. Um, in those days, uh, many of the, the skills that it took to be a ship's captain really could be transferred over to being a military officer. You had to have a sense of command you had to dominate people because you're out in the high seas where your own crew could mutiny. Benedict Arnold developed these skills, I think, of uh, command and and uh, having a, a sense of dominating his subordinates that he quickly transferred over to his military Thing because he had virtually no military training and immediately jumped into the war and immediately within weeks was a a colonel in the Continental Army. So
0: it's so incredible when you read about the American Revolution. Those people who came in command who were doing very different things before, like Henry Knox, you know, well known as the one who brought the cannons from Ticonderoga across to the Berkshires to for Washington to beat them down on the British in Boston. He was a bookseller, I think.
1: Yeah, you know, I I, um, always find him a very interesting character. And it does seem to us very incongruous that a bookseller would jump in and become a military officer. But the one thing we have to remember is, as far as information goes, he had access to information from the books he had that most people couldn't afford of military theory and strategy and he read voraciously about military theory so he had a, a, at least that basic uh structure to apply this you know his uh, uh military experience to from having read all the the books about warfare and the advice of generals from Europe
0: incredible that it is information central was the local bookshop right not yeah. internet <laughs> yeah, exactly so, so- Obviously, Benedict Arnold got, he, he got into this pretty quickly when he heard about what happened at Lexington and Concord, and there'd been a clash between the uh, the colonials and the British, and he got involved pretty quickly. So he, he ended up forming a unit. He was the head of a unit. And what happened then? How did he actually dive in quickly into that war?
1: When the news of Lexington arrived at New Haven, I think it was two days later, he wanted to move immediately and they called out the militia they weren't really ready they didn't all have muskets Uh, he recruited some yale students to sign up with the militia as well so he went to the the town fathers and asked for the keys to the powder house which is where they kept it was their arsenal and uh, they weren't ready to commit they they said well we don't know what happened in lexington massachusetts let's wait until it you know we get them the real story or the more news comes about and he said no we're, we're going to march today and so he demanded the keys to the powder house which was the arsenal for the uh, where they kept their uh, muskets and gunpowder and the town fathers were not ready to commit to the revolution exactly yet they wanted to get more information but uh, arnold uh, threatened to break open the powder house and take the weapons he needed so they gave him the keys, and uh, he then marched immediately with the militia company towards the siege of Boston, which was going on at, immediately after Lexington. And it's interesting that that action is celebrated in New Haven every year now on what they call Powderhouse Day in April. I think it's April 22nd or something.
0: How cool is that? Yeah. Yeah. So no, if right here, just to pause for a second now. I listened to a a lecture that you gave at the New York State Museum, and you referred to your book more as uh, instead of a biography, it's more of a Benedict Arnold's greatest hits. Yeah. (laughs) You said, so to pause here to say that here's this person that history is pretty much treated he is a traitor, he's the worst of the worst, and that's how you're going to be, how he's going to be remembered. But what you're starting to say here is this this guy's a pretty daring, all in to this fight against Britain and that's what we're hearing so we're starting to hear his life roll out as far as this war and how much he's willing to invest his talents into this war right right yeah yeah so let's let's go on from there then so he does get up to massachusetts but then he's i think he's he's given a, a larger command at that point
1: yeah when he got to massachusetts uh in cambridge which was uh, where the the militia were uh, besieging the British who are inside the city, he met Joseph Warren, who is really the radical firebrand of the revolution in Massachusetts. And uh, they were like, uh, uh, had a mind meld. They were like the, had exactly on the same wavelength and uh, both very radical. Both of them knew that the war had to be pursued. Warren got him a commission as um, a colonel in the Massachusetts militia. There was no Continental Army yet at that point. And sent him out to western Massachusetts to recruit men to take over Fort Ticonderoga, which was Benedict Arnold's idea that they—was um, both a strategic location and a source of artillery, because the Patriots had very little artillery— And there were a lot of stored guns in Fort Ticonderoga up on Lake Champlain. So Arnold immediately rode as fast as he could across the entire state of Massachusetts and got out there and eventually got up into the fight for Fort Ticonderoga.
0: And they captured the fort.
1: He captured the fort. The British, the, the news of Lexington and Concord hadn't reached Ticonderoga yet. It had to go up through Canada and then down through the couriers, and so they were totally unaware that there was anything going on. And um, they caught them asleep, and Benedict Arnold had teamed up with the Green Mountain Boys, which was a a vigilante group uh, up in what is now Vermont, but was then disputed territory between New York and New Hampshire. And uh, Ethan Allen, who was the head of these Green Mountain Boys, though Ethan Allen is sometimes given the credit for taking over Tachyna, it was really, Benedict Arnold had a much a much better sense of leadership, of what needed to be done. And in particular, as soon as they took over the fort, he sailed up to Canada and captured a sloop of war, which was the only British warship on Lake Champlain. So uh, that gave the Patriots control of Lake Champlain, which was crucial for holding on to Fort Ticonderoga and for thwarting the British uh, strategic objective early in the war, which was to come down that Lake Champlain, which allowed them to connect to the Hudson River and come all the way down to New York. And they wanted to split the colonies by controlling what was, in those days, was kind of the superhighway of the colonies. There was a waterway that ran from Montreal all the way down to New York City. And the Patriot control of Ticonderoga is what prevented them from doing that.
0: Two very big contributions there that had big ramifications. Obviously, the cannons from Ticonderoga were used. Ultimately, also the British not having like free sailing in the waterways there, uh, you know, kept them from really cutting off the northern colonies or or the New England colonies, I should say. So, we got these big initiatives. He's taking. Is he rising in rank too at this time?
1: Well, there was, there was really a tremendous amount of confusion at that time, because who was in control of this revolution that was just getting underway? And that was a big dispute. And who was going to pay for it? And so he had his credentials from Massachusetts, as well as from Connecticut. Connecticut then sent a force of men up to, to help man Ticonderoga with an officer who was Supposed to take over, but they then had the clash between: was Massachusetts in charge, or was Connecticut in charge of a fort that was actually in New York? In New York, it was very slow to get you know up to speed during the revolution. Congress wanted to give the fort back. Originally, they thought it would it would prevent a, a reconciliation with Britain, which is what they wanted early in the war. So there was a lot of confusion as to who who was in control. Uh, which led to hard feelings and disputes and uh, eventually to Arnold resigning his uh, commission there and going home mm. uh, so it was largely the, just the 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 lack of clear command before they got the Continental Army in place
0: yeah now benedict Arnold uh, his resignation didn't last long, did it
1: no he he um immediately went back to boston where by this time uh, george washington was now in charge and was starting to take the militia forces there and 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 shape them into a continental army and arnold had proposed and other people had had the idea as well an invasion of canada and they the congress though reluctant at first had come around and decided yeah they will send a force up into canada It made a lot of strategic sense, but it was not ultimately a a success when they uh, tried to pull it off. But they were going to send one force up from Lake Champlain from Ticonderoga. And uh, Washington assigned Benedict Arnold to take another army and go up into Maine and go over the mountains of Maine to attack the city of Quebec. That was a, a very daring move. Nobody had really knew of any roads up there. There were trails through the woods that had been originated by Indians and very few maps. And yet uh, Arnold took a a thousand man army with all their supplies that they weren't able to take cannon because they they couldn't take cannon. They they put their supplies in these um, what they call white man's canoes, like uh, hammered together boats and um, went up the Kennebec River, and uh, that was considered one of the most amazing military uh, expeditions in history. It's uh, The the hardships that they ran into, through no fault of their own, it was just a matter of, uh, it was much more difficult than they thought it was going to be. It, they had brought excess food along, but a lot of the food was spoiled or it got spoiled on the way because of the water getting in the boats they didn't really row the boats up the river they essentially pushed them wading through the ice water uh tough going ran out of food and arnold really proved his leadership in that that expedition because it was it was uh, the lives of those men were on his the decisions that he made and he did eventually and get them over the mountains and down, almost captured Quebec, but it was a fortified city. It was uh, he didn't have the cannon to knock the walls down, so the, uh, he had to wait for the the other end of the expedition which was just coming up the St Lawrence River, and uh, it didn't uh, turn out well.
0: And I think the one was one of the objectives, really, to you know bring the war into Canada and have uh, gained the support of the French Canadians there against the british was that the
1: yeah yeah they 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 figured that the the french would be eager to join them uh you know having the resentment of the british they'd only been under the control of the british for a dozen years at that point uh, the, the british had taken over canada um, but the french were reluctant to take sides that was a big factor they thought they could get quite a few fighters from the French population along the St. Lawrence, and they just didn't want to commit themselves to one way or the other. So um, they knew that there would probably be reinforcements that would be sent over in the spring, and that's what the way it turned out. In addition to a smallpox epidemic that broke out among the um, among the troops there, but they did make the attempt on uh, during a snowstorm at the end of December to storm Quebec. Benedict Arnold was under the a subordinate then to General Montgomery, who was in command. And Montgomery's plan to storm the city walls uh, just didn't work. And uh, Montgomery was killed. Benedict Arnold took over. But by that time, they, they lost a large part of their force and uh, had just a skeleton force up there. And in the spring, of course, the, the British reinforcements arrived and they had to get out as quick as they could.
0: So... When you think about the what Arnold was tasked to do, you know his military achievements are in, in many cases lost to history um, until we <laughs> read books like yours. What an effort to get, however, it was a thousand men through all that terrain and and to attack and not knowing what's going to happen when they attack. Are they going to get annihilated or what have you? Just the hardship and then of course dealing with disease and lack of provisions and not having cannons. So this guy's got a lot of gumption, hasn't he?
1: Yeah, and I think, uh, again, we see that admonition from his mother, you know, be prepared to die. It was really, um, I think it was true of a lot of the fighters in the revolution that uh, you had no doubt that you were risking your life. And um, Arnold was uh, smart about the way he did it, but he he was a very daring person.
0: Yeah, I think he got a flesh wound, some kind of a wound at Quebec.
1: When they tried to storm the, the city, uh, he did get shot in the uh, in his calf, mm. and it was painful, but it was not, not fatal, and he um, recovered fairly quickly and really held command there for a number of months. And he kept asking for a senior officer to be sent up to take over, and they just didn't have anybody to send. And uh, sort of a siege of a sort went on, Uh, throughout the winter, uh, but the troops got sicker and sicker. And as soon as they saw the British reinforcements arrive, uh, they all headed uh, down to St. Lawrence to get back into the colony. So,
0: I know there's such great details in your book about these, these events, but just to go real quickly through a couple others, no less important, but we'll start with at Lake Champlain, Arnold utilized his naval experience at a place called Valcor and, and you've written a book about this, right? Another
1: yeah, book. that was uh, uh, one of my uh, a- avenues for interest in Benedict Arnold was writing the book about the Battle of, what they call the Battle of Valcour Island, which was during the, the very crucial year of 1776, George Washington was fortifying New York City. They had forced the British out of Boston, the British were sending a massive army over, partly to New York, partly to Canada, and the force in Canada was intended to come down that water corridor of Lake Champlain, Lake George, Hudson River. Benedict Arnold was not in command, but he was he was sort of second in command to General Gates, who was at Fort Ticonderoga. Gates had no nautical experience. And so all of the the naval aspect of the defense of Ticonderoga was fell onto Benedict Arnold. They built gunboats, they built uh, some small sailing vessels with cannon on them, and then he went up to the north end of Lake Champlain to meet the British, who were building a much bigger fleet and had all the resources of the Royal Navy behind them to come down the lake. But the British had to have those warships in order to protect their troops as they sailed down the lake. So it took week after week after week, and it got into uh, October before uh, the British finally decided to sail down Lake Champlain. Benedict Arnold had placed his fleet in a little bay between Valcour Island, uh, which is about a mile off the New York shore, where it was protected from the weather and also hidden from the British. And the British came down on October 11th. Uh, they fought a battle in that bay. Arnold had a really brilliant strategy of fighting from anchor. So they, he knew the British were much better at sailing their ships and maneuvering their ships. So his ships were just sat there in a line in anchor. And they, they swung them back and forth to shoot from one side and then the other side. A very brutal form of warfare went on for seven hours. And then it got dark and the Americans were still standing. But they were then vulnerable because they'd used up most of their ammunition. So Benedict Arnold came up with a plan to escape. And it's almost like a fairy tale. They were able to escape through the British blockade of this much bigger fleet and head down the river, uh, down the Lake Champlain. There was more fighting farther south on Lake Champlain. Most of the American fleet was destroyed But by the time the British then got their army down to Fort Ticonderoga, it was too late in the season to start a siege. They were afraid of the lake freezing behind them, which would have trapped them there. And so they uh, decided, well, we'll go back to Montreal and try again in the spring. So that campaign in 1776 in the north was a complete success. And if you look at the other end of that corridor, that water corridor, the campaign waged by George Washington in and around New York City was a complete failure. George Washington lost the Battle of Brooklyn, the largest battle of the entire war. He was forced out of New York City, eventually forced across New Jersey, ended up on the far side of the Delaware River in Pennsylvania. He had, had started out with a 20,000-man army. He was down to 3,000 men, and he wrote a letter to his brother and he said, I think the game is pretty near up. And if he had had to also contend with an invasion coming down the Hudson River, uh, I think it would have been curtains for him. But instead, Benedict Arnold and Horatio Gates brought more than 600 men down from Fort Ticonderoga that were no longer needed there because the British had gone home. And they joined Washington's army in Pennsylvania so some of the men who fought at uh, Valcour Island also crossed the Delaware with uh, George Washington on Christmas night and fought, and it was really his most spectacular battle at Trenton. Benedict Arnold was not one of them because he'd been sent off on another assignment, but he certainly could take a lot of credit for what happened uh, during that campaign and, and the way that Washington was able to revive patriot hopes by uh, attacking the British at Trenton.
0: There you go again. Benedict Arnold is involved in something very big for the cause of independence at that point. So I know there were other engagements that he had during his military career with Washington, but let's let's talk about this really, really super significant Battle of Saratoga in September of 1777 and Benedict Arnold's involvement in that battle.
1: Yeah. Ironically, Benedict Arnold had gone to Philadelphia in the summer of seventeen seventy-seven to resign and he'd handed in his resignation. He thought he should have got more promotion than he'd gotten. Junior officers had been promoted over his head, and he was just generally disgruntled with Congress. And Congress at that time controlled all of the military the promotions of the of the major officers. Benedict Arnold handed in his resignation from the Continental Army. The same day that he handed it in, the news arrived that Fort Ticonderoga had been taken by the British. The British had finally gotten that uh, invasion that they wanted down that corridor. General John Burgoyne had 7,000-man army, a very heavy uh, train of artillery. And Arnold forgot all about his resignation, jumped on a horse, rode up, joined uh, General Gates, who was in command then. They decided to meet general burgoyne on the high ground a few miles south of the village of saratoga which was along the hudson river north of albany they fought two battles there which collectively are called the battle of saratoga in both battles general burgoyne tried to sweep around the left end of the american lines in both battles benedict arnold was in command of the left division In the first battle, he really fought Burgoyne to a standstill. And in the second battle, he decisively defeated Burgoyne and led a charge into the British uh, field fortifications that broke through and put Burgoyne in a position where he had to do what he said he would never do, which was to retreat. Benedict Arnold was severely wounded in that battle in the same leg he'd earlier been shot in uh, the fight around Quebec. But this time, it shattered the bone in his leg. But uh, General Burgoyne, 10 days later, surrendered his entire army to General Gates in what is often referred to as the turning point of the Revolutionary War that brought the French into the war and really did change the complexion of the war.
0: That is incredible. I mean, that was a severe injury. That really caused him a permanent disability, didn't it?
1: yes they think it's not even clear exactly what the wound was they didn't go into describing them at that time but they think that it hit his shin bone and shattered his shin bone that would normally be a cause for amputation but arnold refused amputation and was able to recover but it was a with a very bad limp for the rest of his life and lived through a lot of pain you know you can imagine those days before pain relief was uh, in a very primitive state
0: so Here we go. We've gotten a lot of these successes and other things, of course, that he was involved in, but I'm going to fast forward to 1780. Before we go any further, just to set the stage, we're going to talk about some of the reasons why we think Benedict Arnold became a traitor. But let's start with the day that this all broke loose. What was the plan that Arnold had with Major Andre and the British? to sell out, in effect?
1: Well, once he decided to switch sides, he wanted uh, the biggest bang for his buck, let's say. And he got command of the lower Hudson Valley, which included West Point, which in those days was not a military academy. It was a fort that really controlled the access to the Hudson River. And he agreed to with the British that he would give over the fort. He would allow them to capture the fort. So in September of 1780, he met with uh, Major Andre in neutral ground down along the Hudson River. He gave him a map of the fort, told him the best way to attack the troop deployments, gave him a pass that he could uh, move around through American lines. And then Benedict Arnold went home, and Major Andre was intending to go back to New York, where the British headquarters was. And he was very excited and he was very nervous. He was excited because he had really pulled off the biggest intelligence coup of the war that was going to totally make his career. And he was nervous because between the American lines and the British lines, there was a no man's land that was basically Westchester County. And he knew that there there were both loyalists and patriots patrolling, uh, militia patrolling in the area. And he was in civilian clothing. So he got down to almost a Terrytown, which is fairly a good way down towards the British lines. He was stopped by three militiamen. They pointed their muskets at him. He made the mistake of saying, I hope you're of our party. And so one of these militiamen who was not so dumb said, Oh yeah, what party is that? And then Major Andre had to guess. He said, The lower party, meaning the British. And uh, the militiaman said, we're Americans, get down. They got him off his horse. They searched him. They found the documents that Arnold had given him. They took him to their commanding officer, Colonel Jameson. And I think Colonel Jameson was a little slow on the uptake because Colonel Jameson sent a letter to his commanding officer, who was Benedict Arnold, describing the suspicious activity that uh, had taken place down near Tarrytown. And then Jameson had second thoughts about it, and he decided to get in touch with um, George Washington as well. And the real twist in this whole plot was that George Washington was not in the American camp, but had been over in Hartford, Connecticut, meeting with French officers, was on his way back and was going to have breakfast the next morning at Benedict Arnold's house with Arnold and his wife. And then it was going to go over and inspect the uh, fortifications at West Point. So you have the case where Washington is approaching from the north. Two couriers are approaching from the south, unbeknownst to each other, because the second courier then had found out that that's where Washington would be. Washington's aides arrive at Arnold's house. So the general's just up the road. He'll be there in a few minutes. Arnold, at that point, gets the first letter from the courier he tells his wife, I've got to get out of here. And he said, tell Washington, uh, I'm going over to West Point. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be back. Just wait here for me. Washington arrives. Arnold's not there. He's over at West Point. Well, let's go over and do the inspection now. So Washington and his whole entourage goes over to West Point. They begin to look around, and the, the fortifications were in poor shape. They had not been rebuilt as they were supposed to. There weren't enough men there. He said, where's Benedict Arnold? He said, well, we haven't seen him in two days. Washington later described his own thinking. He said, my mind misgave me. He said, I didn't suspect the real cause, though. And it's that type of feeling of like, there's something very wrong here, but I don't know what it is. He went back to Arnold's house, was going to take a nap. The other courier arrived washington immediately knew what the story was he called in his most trusted uh subordinate uh, henry knox he said arnold has betrayed us who can we trust now and that was really wasn't a, a rhetorical question because washington at that point didn't know how far this plot went and who was involved so he sent alexander hamilton riding down to try to catch up with arnold alerted the army to send troops up to protect West Point. And then there was uh, another form of drama evolved as uh, Benedict Arnold's wife started pulling her clothes off and uh, having a hysterical fit. And these officers didn't suspect that a woman could be so devious that she was actually in on the plot all along and was trying to help her husband escape. Uh, But Uh, That was the case, and he did escape and uh, went over to the British in New York.
0: So she was doing more of a smokescreen, I guess, to try to buy time for her husband. Absolutely. Oh, that is crazy. So Benedict Arnold does escape, doesn't he?
1: Yes, and I think his uh, plot to give over West Point is usually the focus of what people know about his treason, but he went on to uh, become a brigadier general in the British Army went down to Virginia, fought quite well, actually, down there in spite of his leg, and uh, then was given the assignment to raid the city of New London. He took a force up there, burnt part of the city. Uh, There was a a fort that they took over, and there was a a massacre after the takeover, which Arnold was not involved in, but he, he was the commander. This was only a few miles from his hometown. Uh, So there was almost like a psychological factor there. And then uh, after Yorktown, he went over to England and um, never came back.
0: Yeah, and he he did all right financially after he defected, right? And uh, he was a good businessman even over in England. So so it wasn't like he he went broke and ended up in a gutter somewhere. Right. I, I don't
1: think he was a happy person after he was not. Really accepted in Britain because even though he had helped the British cause, uh, nobody likes a traitor. You know? So, but you're correct. He did fairly well in business. Uh, he was always a astute businessman. Had gotten a fair amount of money from the British government, as did his wife Peggy. Uh, got a, a stipend from the British for her help in the plot, and his sons all went into the British army and did quite well as well. But uh, he always wanted to get back in the action and uh, the British weren't about to put him in a position of command once he'd, uh, once he'd come over there.
0: Yeah. So part of the arrangement for giving over the plans to West Point was financial. I mean, there was a, there was a financial part of it. I understand he didn't get quite what he would have gotten had it been successful, but he did get something.
1: Yeah. There was talk about, uh, they had agreed to Uh, 20,000 pounds, which was a huge fortune in those days, if he was able to go over uh, West Point. And I think he got 6,000 pounds, which was still a very substantial amount of money. But um, people say, well, he only did it for the money, but he probably, and I think he probably understood that if he'd stuck it out, uh, continued his business in America, he would probably have done better financially. and. He knew that once he went over to the British, he was giving up his commission, his salary, his his business, all his contacts. So he thought it was only fair that he should get compensated for it. That was his view.
0: Yeah, definitely. So just to back up, our uh, poor Major Andre, uh, he was tried, right, um, and hanged.
1: Yes. Originally, uh, George Washington tried to Arrange an exchange; they would give Andre back in exchange for Arnold, who they would then hang. But General Clinton, who was the British commander then, wanted to encourage people to defect. You know, they had arranged for this major defection by Arnold, and if he gave a defector back to the Patriots, that would have ended all defections. So he realized that was not a possibility, and they uh, he allowed Major andre to go to his uh, death it happened very quickly afterwards
0: it did i've done some reading on andre there's just a little side note one of our earliest episodes we interviewed the owner of the old 76 house in Tappan new york i don't know if you're familiar with it but that's where that was major andre's cell where he was imprisoned right before his hanging and if you go to that restaurant you will see over the fireplace in the dining room is a picture of Benedict Arnold, but it is hanging upside down. And <laughs> it's purposely hung upside down.
1: <laughs> there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of sympathy for Andre because the American officers felt that, well, he was just doing his duty. He was doing what a soldier should do. Yeah, he, he shouldn't have taken off his uniform because that uh, really made him a spy rather than a, a military officer. But uh, he was trying to accomplish what a soldier should try to accomplish for his side. And so that they felt that it was too bad that he had to be the one to pay the price, whereas Benedict Arnold, who, who had uh, committed such treachery, would be allowed to live. George Washington did try to kidnap Arnold and had a plot afoot uh, in New York before Arnold left for Virginia to fight down there. And they almost were able to get hold of him. And uh, he would have been hanged if that had been the case. But they they missed the chance and, uh, and didn't get another one.
0: Yeah. So let's just talk about some of the motivations we think could have been there for Arnold. I think we've touched a little bit about finances. What are some of the common go-tos as far as what people have come up with with ideas as to why he made this big change in his allegiances?
1: Well, it seems like everybody has their favorite theory as to why uh, the reasons for Benedict Arnold's defection. What intervened uh, before he decided to, uh, to switch sides was that he had been put in charge as an administrator because he was laid up with his leg. He was made an administrator in Philadelphia after the Americans took Philadelphia back. Or the British had actually abandoned it after capturing it in 1777. They left in 78. And Arnold was put into charge of sort of a martial law in Philadelphia while the civilian administration was being put back in place. And there were quite a few loyalists in Philadelphia who would Cooperate with the British. Uh, a lot of the wealthier people of Philadelphia were sort of on the fence. They were they were neither. They didn't totally commit as loyalists, but they weren't very uh, ardent patriots either. Arnold tended to associate with them as a wealthy man himself. He liked to associate with uh, people that had money and uh, gave parties and dinners, and uh, came into the under the sway of. Um, Peggy Shippen, who was the daughter of a very prominent loyalist-leaning—he wasn't exactly a loyalist, but he was a loyalist-leaning family there—and Arnold's first wife had died during the war, and he was looking for a wife, and uh, he he married—Peggy Shippen was half his age, she was 19 and he was 36, and some people point to that as she then influenced him. I think that seems improbable. She did. She knew Major Andre, and she did serve as a go-between. But I think it's improbable that she really had much to do with, uh, you know, a nineteen-year-old young woman. Uh, however politically astute she was, she was unlikely that she was the cause of making him commit to this major decision in his life. Some say it was the money. It was the the major cause. Arnold himself wrote a letter very soon after he went over to the British, and he listed in there that he didn't like the French, he didn't like the alliance with the French, he never really wanted independence, He and various other reasons for his uh, going over to the British that really come off as excuses more than imagining that that actually motivated him to do that. And it turned out that that letter wasn't even written by him, it was written by a, a British administrator who was simply listing a lot of the loyalist arguments for being against the revolution. And none of them really rang true. I think you know he knew what the alliance with the French was all about. It was a crucial for Americans to keep the war going. He knew most of his military feats were after the Declaration of Independence, so it couldn't have been that that was the problem. So my own answer to why he committed treason was, I don't know. And um, the one speculation that I make in the book, and I and I go into all the factors in the book, but I, I really think that Arnold was such an enigma, it's very hard to say yes, that's the reason. But one of the factors which I talk about is that he was always addicted to action. He loved to be in the action. When he was in battle, when he was in a in a crucial situation, He always seemed to operate very smoothly, very intelligently. When he was idle, he tended to get in trouble. He had rubbed people the wrong way. He didn't have a good sense of being diplomatic in his relations with other military officers. And he was, in a way, I think, addicted to this action to the point where when he was laid up, he started thinking too much. He started imagining things, that you know, how things could go. And even perhaps, and I, I certainly don't have any evidence for this, but even the thrill of being a traitor was a factor for him because he knew as soon as he made contact with the British, he was a, he was a marked man. And if any word had slipped out of the British headquarters, Benedict Arnold is, a, is our agent, he would have been taken and lost everything and been hanged. That was a kind of thrilling uh, situation for him, for a guy who's now laid up because of his leg. Was that a factor? I don't know. But it's uh, it's something to think about.
0: I also know that throughout the book, there's indications of his being very thin-skinned and things bothered him a lot. So maybe when he was in that laid up condition, he was just thinking about all the things that were making him upset about Congress or or mostly maybe his own lack of adrenaline that he was getting from being laid up it's possible you know
1: yeah i think that's very true and and the sense of honor which was a big deal in a way that is hard to imagine now it was a very big deal in uh the fighting duels and you you know you've insulted me arnold took that to an extreme really he didn't fight a lot of duels he did do a few of them but uh he um didn't take criticism well
0: so if I could get a cameraman to go back to the day that both Arnold and Washington found out that what had happened when Arnold read that letter from Jameson that uh, Andre had been apprehended, uh, his, I can see the look on his face, <laughs> uh, and then versus the look on Washington's face when he realized one of his most trusted officers had betrayed him. Because Washington was a pretty big supporter of Arnold's, wasn't he? Yeah,
1: absolutely. He he had loved Arnold both, you know, I think personally he uh, was very fond of him and knew how valuable he had been to the cause and how valuable he was. And I always uh, point out that William Shakespeare wrote a a lot of plays about history, but history sometimes seems to create its own dramas, which seems so improbable, and yet it was like a playwright had written that the whole incident of how benedict arnold's uh, treason was uh, unwound
0: so jack what prompted you to write this book now well
1: james i think that really the there's a number of reasons behind you know writing any book i suppose but one of them is that benedict arnold is a great conduit into the revolution, into the, the whole story of the revolution, because he's one of the m- most well-known revolutionary soldiers, uh, probably second only to George Washington. And I thought that it's both a, an inspiring tale, but also a cautionary tale. And I sometimes uh, refer to it as uh, history for adults. It's not the Parson Weems, you know, I chopped down the cherry tree, now I must tell the truth. This is history, as we know, in fact, like life. It's full of contradictions. It's full of conflicts. And so Benedict Arnold has all of that. And uh, I think is a, is a cautionary tale is that we have to look at people carefully and not take everything at face value. And the, the people who are paradoxical, as uh, Benedict Arnold proved to be, can be very dangerous. And that's uh, what Benedict Arnold was. And he came very close to really, to ruining the uh, the Patriot cause by committing treason.
0: Jack, this has been a great conversation and I've really learned a lot. Your book, God Save Benedict Arnold, the true story of America's most hated man. People can get that at any any sort of booksellers, websites and things.
1: Yeah, the, the, it's available wherever books are sold. And I have a website, uh, you, you can find sources on the website, jackkellybooks.com, and also sign up for my uh, my newsletter, which uh, gives a little bit of history and uh, information about my writing activities.
0: That's terrific. And what's your next project?
1: Uh, I'm actually in, uh, working on a book about Tom Paine, who I think is another one of the really interesting characters of the revolution. Uh, has always been also a somewhat controversial figure. Is he a, really one of our founders? Uh, had a fascinating life, and I'm focusing on his participation in the revolution.
0: That's great. I'm looking forward to that, and we'll have to have you back on our podcast to have you tell us about that book. And as we approach the 250th anniversary of our nation's birth, I'm so glad that. You are actively doing this research and sharing it with people, so we can learn more—not just not just history buffs, but people who are interested in just good storytelling and characters uh, of people and what makes people tick. What were they really about? Not what just you know has been passed on from generation to generation. Let's uh, let's hear from people who've been doing great research and uh, bringing history alive, keeping it alive, and making it new. So thank you for that. So, Jack, I wish you all the best, and just keep doing what you do.
1: Well, thank you very much, James. It's really been a pleasure, and uh, it's always good to talk to you.
0: Thanks, Jack. Have a great day. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YH. YS podcast we'd love to hear from you if you have any questions comments or a story to tell be well and god bless